Welcome, everyone, to a very special roundtable. I'm joined by a group of podcasters today to talk about the Betty and Barney Hill incident, and uh, they're all going to introduce themselves uh, right now. So uh, go right ahead, Chris. Hey, everyone. I am Chris Cogswell. I am the host of the Mad Scientist podcast, Um, also a friend of everyone on the call today, and super excited to be here. Also perpetually on time. Which is really good. Says you. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. I'll keep it going. Hi, everybody. This is Dina Marie. I'm the host of the Twisted Philly podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Chris was on my show before, but this is my first time recording with everyone else. So thank you all so much for inviting me to join you today. And I am Jennifer Taylor. I am the co-host of Vanished and the host of In Defense of Liberty. And I've never recorded with Rob before, but my voice was on the other episodes that covered this case. So you might recognize me. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) (laughs) And hey, I'm Reggie Whitley, and I feel honored. I'm the only non-podcaster on here. Uh, I got invited in by Rob because I love this case and I'm excited to to talk about it. So... uh, Good to join you guys. Uh, it's good to have you all here. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on and talk about this case. It's one of the most pivotal cases in UFO history. And uh, the first question I kind of want to kick to you guys. Um, uh, one aspect of this case that uh, is pretty unique is the actual physical evidence that is uh, presented uh, there were tears in Betty Hill's dress uh, and Barney's pants had these prickers on them that he couldn't account for and his shoes were scuffed. Uh, also, their car had strange silver dollar sized circles on their trunk that they don't know how they got there. And also uh, their trunk was allegedly magnetized. So uh, starting off with Chris here, do you think that they add these pieces of physical evidence add any validity to the case. Yeah, I certainly do. I mean, you know, the, the thing that's so fascinating about the Betty and Barney Hill case is the fact that it, it's sort of the first case of its kind. And I mean, and I mean that in a number of different ways and really one of the, one of those ways importantly is the presence of physical evidence. Uh, It's really the first time that we kind of considered there being evidence that could be corroborated in a secondary way, right? Like the star map or the scrapes on Barney's shoes or the powder on Betty's dress. Um, It's hard not to, you know, it's hard not to think that that adds something to this. The issue is that, you know, a lot of the evidence, there's no, like with a lot of UFO cases, there's no smoking gun. So it's hard to, make the case specifically that, well, this is the one piece that proves everything. Uh, But there are some, there are some that are just, I think, I think 
in line with something traumatic having been done to them in some way. Um, you know, I mean, the one that always stuck out to me was Barney's shoes. The top of his shoes were chewed up really badly in a way that made it seem like he was dragged. You know, I mean, unless he's like walking on the tops of his shoes for some reason or scuffing them himself or any, you know, kind of weird, crazy explanation there. The clearest explanation for that is that he was sort of propped up and his legs were dragging behind him as he was being dragged someplace. That to me is pretty interesting and I think uh, always stuck out to me as a piece of strong evidence. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that it's it is significant. Um, uh, I don't know if any of uh, uh, if you guys have uh, any thoughts on this. Uh, if you do, go ahead and chime in. Uh, I, I I tend to be a little bit more hesitant with the physical evidence, at least that physical evidence. The the stuff to Betty's dress is pretty significant, and Barney's shoes, but it doesn't totally confirm the the sighting though or anything or the abduction at least now well, can it, i though? say something because so yeah, I, yeah, for right those ahead. of you who don't know i'm actually i'm a criminal defense attorney in austin in addition to doing the you know the podcasting stuff so anytime i look at a weird case like this and i look at what evidence do we have i kind of in my mind analogize it to what we do in court every day and what my co-host on vanish always asks me is can you prove a case without what he would call a smoking gun? And there are mm. so like and more often than not, all you have is circumstantial evidence that when taken together can prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. It's actually very rare that you have one, like the one piece of evidence that's just so strong that that's it. That's all you need. That is the smoking gun. Most of the time, the whole reason why you're in trial is because we can't all agree on what happened and because there isn't a definitive obvious answer because there isn't a definitive obvious piece of evidence. And so for me, that actually doesn't take too much away from the case. The fact that there is physical evidence that tends to corroborate some of the things that were said in later you know, hypnotic sessions and things like that, that does to me add to the case because to me, I'm looking at the big picture, all of it together. And I'm not just looking for one smoking gun, if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that yeah, makes sense. So yeah, I, go ahead, man. The, the ahead. one thing I'd look at this, and guys, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm a huge skeptic of this case, not the whole abduction phenomenon, but this particular case. And I'll, because when you, when you look at it, I think you have to look at the chronological order that the things that came up happened, not the chronological order of what they've laid out, and the the physical evidence in this didn't really come until later. Right. I mean, it wasn't the next day that they found the physical evidence. This was later on that the physical evidence came up. So it's not necessary to say, hey, that's not real and part of it. It's just the physical evidence didn't come up until sometime post event um, after it was reported and after the dream started and things like that. So uh, for me, that's one of the points that I think you really look at and say, well, is it evidence or did they? have this event happen, which some portion of it happened, and then there was finding these other things that seemed to seem to come along with it. And at what point were they found? Yeah, one one thing that, you know, we I mentioned earlier that the Betty and Barney Hill case is kind of a sort of a watershed moment. It's like a, a cornerstone of the whole UFO 
abduction mythos phenomena, whatever you want to call it. And one of the things that it really got started right off the bat was, you know, messing up all of the evidence in case, <laughs> you know, making the cases impossible to understand and prove as possible from the very beginning. Because like you said, the 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 sort of information that we have about the case that's, you know, shown in The Interrupted Journey and in, um, you know, the, the book by Kathleen Martin and all the documentaries and everything else, all of that comes together into one cohesive story later. But really, if if the story itself is to be believed, the piece of evidence that they noticed immediately was the car, uh, the electrical disturbance of the car, the magnetization of the back of the car the next morning, and also Betty's sort of uh, uncomfortableness about their clothing items, right? That seems – she would claim later that it seemed that she was worried about them. She put them away for a long time, whatever. But even that, I mean, a lot of this is all very, very circumstantial. It's as you dig into it, it starts to kind of it, it can easily be taken apart, I would say. And, and I think you have to consider the time when this occurred, because there was laboratory analysis done on Betty's dress. She mentioned that she hung it up to air it out and all of this pink dust blew away. We know today with the technology we have now there would still be trace evidence, right? There would still be an opportunity to test something and determine what's the composite of these particles, these materials. And that's just not something that was possible. The one thing that that always struck me when I look at images of the dress in different documentaries is it almost looks like what happens to antique fabric that isn't preserved, it gets brittle. And the tears to me, some of them look almost like it's more of a, a breakage and it's brittle. So it, it it definitely made me wonder what might have happened to her clothing besides the rips, because it just seemed to take on this this brittleness about it. Has this stuff been preserved in a way that modern day testing could be done on any of this stuff? I mean, I don't know as much about it as you guys all do. There was, uh, I believe it was UFO Hunters, the, the guys on that show. I do believe they tested portions of the dress, and I think there are other people that have. But I don't think they came to any significant conclusion about it. Actually, the dre- all of the papers and, and stuff, the dress, all of the physical artifacts and all that are actually currently at the University of New Hampshire, my alma mater, um, right. which was super cool. Um, my junior year is when they went on display. And so, you know, you'd go into the library and the bust of the alien head, that's the famous, um, you know, that famous uh, image and the drawings and everything else and all of that um, were right there in the library hallway, which was crazy. It was very, very interesting. But yeah, um, I don't know if it's really been preserved in that way. I mean, again, the issue is that <sighs> the issue is that so much of the evidence would be um, the, the problem with UFO evidence generally, I guess I'll say, is that a lot of the time it gets analyzed through the lens of either a believer or a skeptic. And so any resulting evidence is thrown away immediately. And the star map is a good example of that. Um, Betty draws this star map and then it is sort of, you know, placed onto another star system kind of sort of that it fits and everything else. And the UFO believer response is, well, that's amazing evidence, right? Look, she predicted this perfectly. And the skeptic argument is, well, if you have a random assortment of dots and then you just look hard enough into the sky, 
you will eventually find some connection between those, especially when you have no accounting for um, distance or position in the XYZ plane, right? These are three-dimensional things. Uh, it's really easy to make that fit. So I don't even know if we did test the dress or if we did test these pieces of evidence, it would even go anywhere. I don't, I don't know that it would do any good, unfortunately. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of true. I, I, I would tend to agree with that. It, it's, um, it's tough to really nail down. I, I, I think with the, it, the, I generally struggle with the physical evidence in this case, um, and, and just kind of where to put it, but, uh, I want to pivot here for a second and uh, talk about uh, hypnosis. And uh, we'll start with Dina here. Um, You know, hypnosis is a tool often used in abduction research. And many think it's kind of this road to the truth. In terms of uh, these abduction cases, do you think the use of hypnosis in them is good or bad? Or do you... Uh, or neutral here. I, I hate saying neutral. I think hypnosis as a practice can be very subjective. I went to a hypnosis seminar in my 20s. So this was a long time ago. I was trying to quit smoking at the time. And, you know, there's like, quit smoking, get hypnotized. And it was in a hotel and all these people around me are in deep hypnosis. And I'm sitting there with my eyes closed, but kind of squinting out the corner of my eyes, like, why are all these people in a trance and I'm not, does this just not work? So, you know, so I, I think it's subjective. It's interesting because when you talk about the physical evidence, what probably had a greater impact on me about this story is the non-physical evidence. And, and I'm talking about the hypnosis. So listening to segments of Barney and Betty's interview, especially Barney, when he was under hypnosis the level of fear and terror in his voice doesn't feel contrived. It doesn't feel fake. Whether that means it's something that actually happened or something that he believes happened, I, I don't know that I can say definitively. I think it's interesting that it really wasn't until they went through hypnosis that they were able to say, we were abducted. We had this experience, right? They went through whatever emotional and psychological turmoil for a period of years some physical health issues as well. And then it was suggested that they go through hypnosis with Dr. Simon. So that threw me a little bit that, all right, you're struggling for a period of time. And are these repressed memories? Are these dreams? And this is like a a co-psychosis that you're experiencing with your wife. But listening to the tapes is really unsettling. And I have a hard time believing that at the very least, they don't believe something happened to them because the level of fear is significant. Um, you know, I mean, there's moments where he's kind of screaming at himself to run away and to run away. And I, I struggled listening to that. It was very unsettling. Um, so I guess it's a tough call because I, I do think it's very subjective. I think depending on the person, clearly I'm not somebody that can be hypnotized. Maybe somebody else in our group today is. And it, there's some other things besides hypnosis that that made me feel more strongly about the possibility that this occurred. I don't know if we'll touch on that, so I don't want to get into it just yet. But for me, in this case, the fact that it was years afterwards that they went through the hypnosis and then all of this came out, I'm a little suspect about that, to be honest. 
Yeah, the the hypnosis thing for me is one of the biggest. That's one of the biggest aspects that this goes kind of into an area where I think it can come into the most question. I, I studied hypnosis for a while and actually did some hypnosis with some folks and things like that. The, the, the thing with hypnosis is it depends on a lot on the subject themselves. And a lot of this can, that can be illustrated by a stage hypnotist and that, you know, you're talking to a crowd of 50 people and of 50 people, you might have 12 who are incredibly, um, you know, in a position to be hypnotized. And then a few of those you can have on stage and they can be hypnotized in about 30 seconds just because they believe you can do it. Um, so you get in a position where depending on who the person is, they can create this reality in their head because they're prompted. And it's, it, you know, one of the, one of the questions uh, that was, that has been asked in, I think it was Barney's session was, what was the person wearing? Well, if Barney's not offering up what they're wearing and you're asking what they're wearing, just like a dream, it's going to plug in. Oh my gosh, they're wearing that. Right. And it triggers you to answer the question and to come up with a response. And that's one of the things in the hypnosis that also makes me question it is because I'm not sure that aliens would wear what sounds like human clothing, right? Maybe they would. Who am I to decide what species from another planet or galaxy should wear? That being said, I was surprised that it sounded like a description of very human clothing. I think at one point he said it was, you know, similar to SS uniforms and these caps. And so that to me, I found that to be very suspicious but I do feel like, I think Reggie made a great point. I, I do feel like, I don't know that they're fabricating it. I do feel like they have a strong belief in what they feel happened. That doesn't necessarily mean that the hypnosis is a, is a factual account of something that really occurred. And I think it's because of that subjectivity and the influence that somebody can experience when they're in that state. It's hard to listen to those tapes and not come away feeling like something had to have happened because the emotion is so raw. It's so real. And I mean, they have, and and I mean, Kathleen Martin in this case has said that they won't release the entire uh, session because it is that emotional. It gets very personal at times. Uh, There are questions that delve into, um, sexuality and other types of uh, things, uh, psychological things that uh, Dr. Simon approaches. And uh, when you, when you listen to those tapes on like YouTube or something, they're basically hand selected uh, portions of the hypnosis sessions that they included in the audiobook of the interrupted journey. And uh, I ended up, using the using a portion of Barney's in an episode before this uh, in December of 2018. Uh, it was just a basic overview of abductions. And uh, it's still, it's still uh, jarring even to think about it. Um, it is. Yeah. It's haunting. It, it's, it's so unpleasant listening to him. I mean, yeah. he's clearly in, in pain. He's, he's in an abject terror, really. It's, yeah. it's just horrible. Yeah, the challenge I think is that the challenge I think for a lot of people who are interested in these subjects is that, I mean, first off, there's a, for me at least, there's always been this question of ethics, right? 
of and, and the Benny and Barney Hill case in some ways is like the best case scenario possible for hypnosis to be used because it's being done, although it's being done early in the use of hypnosis as a psychological tool. And to be, you know, full disclosure, it has stopped being used as a psychological tool in this way because it's been found to be faulty and it's very easy to implant memories and um your mem you know, you, you cannot recall memories with any degree of certainty um in this way. Right. So what it is useful, though, for or it can be useful for is relieving trauma. And uh, that to me seems like what and that was that was what Dr. Simon's whole point was from the beginning of using it was not to make them remember what happened. It was to help them deal with whatever the trauma was that they had by going through um, this traumatic event in some way. Whether or not that event actually happen in the way that they recall i think is less important um to what dr simon was trying to do but it's taken on a bigger meaning to the ufo community and to i mean it took on a bigger meaning to betty and barney hill you know as you can imagine it would so for me listening to those tapes it's clear that barney and betty are in pain in some way the question is is this pain being inflicted um on accident by dr simon through the use of hypnosis in this way that maybe isn't um, isn't correct or isn't necessarily the best method of dealing with this issue? Or is this trauma from a real event that they had? Or is this trauma from something imagined? You know, um, I mean, you can, I'm sure all of us listening and, and all of us here can imagine or think back to a, a scary event from their childhood that was traumatic in some way, nowhere near as traumatic as say this abduction experience was, but still, you know, I, I still remember a very vivid dream I had when I was a kid where do you guys, you know, that movie, Jum you know, everyone knows the movie Jumanji. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. but, yep. So do you remember those spiders yeah. that come out? Okay. Yes. I had a dream when I was a kid, I was kind of half asleep, half awake. And I dreamed that the spiders from that movie were crawling up my bed towards my face and I couldn't move. And I was freaking out. It was super scary, bothered me for the, you know, the rest of that year practically. And I still remember it very vividly now. <laughs> that didn't actually happen to me, but I also don't have a support group of other people with spider events <laughs> telling me that it must have happened because right. it's so similar to their spider event. Um, so it's, re you know, it's, and so if I went to hypnosis and I asked to relive that night of terror, um, I'm sure my brain would come up with all kinds of other crud, you know? Uh, oh, God. The spiders are so scary. <laughs> you guys, they're so scary. Uh, I, I can think back to a few things from my childhood uh, that definitely creeped me out. Uh, the adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches still gives me nightmares to this day. I I love that movie. I I, I love it, but the the appearance of the witches just I I it's, <laughs> it's scarring. It's scarring. So I I think you raised uh, kind of an interesting point there, Chris, and I, and I kind of wanted to expound upon something else a little bit like how do you how do you think the public perception of this case has changed it over the years. Cause I think, you know, that I think it has to play a part in this case. So how do you think public perception has changed this case over the years? 
you know, the funny thing is that a public perception in some ways has almost crystallized the case into something that I don't think it was, mm-hmm. right? If you listen to what if you listen to Betty, her interviews after the fact and kind of farther away, not in the hypnosis, but kind of farther away, she talks about this like it was a romping good time. And it's weird. It's weird to hear her be like, I asked the aliens to come back, you know, and Barney's like, never bring them back. (laughs) Barney's like freaking out. Right. She, she seemed to kind of like, I I don't know. It's, and I I wonder again, if this is part of the, just her response to the trauma of it or, you know, whatever, but she seemed to have a much more positive view of the goings on that happened than Barney did. And I think that, for a lot of people being involved in the UFO community becomes a part of who they are, a part of their identity. So it's really hard to separate the initial case report and kind of what happened immediately afterwards from the public perception of the case. And also from the UFO community's perception of the case. I think that most people, most people don't even realize if they're talking about what they think a UFO abduction would be like, I don't think most people realize that they're all of that kind of goes back to these two people, you know, who otherwise led a pretty normal life until this event happened to them. Uh, So I think that it's interesting that the kind of public perception has kind of fixed some of the rough edges too, you know, and made it into a more cohesive singular story that really is not the case. Even if you read the interrupted journey or if you read you know, the, again, the book of Kathleen, you know, Kathleen Martin's works on this captured, right. Um, it's not like that at all. You know, the aliens come down they look like, uh, what's that guy's name? Bobby Durante or Jimmy Durante, Jimmy Durante, Jimmy Durante. There we go. (laughs) That was her dream view of what they looked like. I think she started blending what she saw in her dreams with what was coming out through hypnosis. Right. And well, she also says that they're not, they're not really gray. They're more blue. Right. right. They're more of a blue color. Right. So and they're wearing clothes. They're wearing like little pajamas that, you know, it's so. So what we think the case means or, or really was like is not really what it was like. And like you said, it, it merges with her own perception of the dreams and her memories and everything else. It just well, becomes an, an impossible mess to separate. I think people's perceptions of the hills, at least early on, really set the stage for public perception of this case because, and you would even mention this, they were highly respected folks in their community. They weren't people who were quick to be hysterics. You know, there was nothing like that in in their lives. Um, Barney was somebody who was active in supporting state politics. He was involved with the civil rights movement and so it, oftentimes in documentaries and and certainly with what their niece talks about is that these were very normal as well as very upstanding members of the community. These were folks that people knew. And when you set that tone and, and not that you shouldn't believe or disbelieve somebody who maybe doesn't have quite a quote unquote upstanding lifestyle, right? And who are we to judge what is and isn't upstanding? But if that's the way they're being described, I think it set the tone very early on for credibility. 
And then the state of Massachusetts erects a historic marker in 2011 near the area where they believe the abduction happened. So then that really, you know, we have historic markers at the Liberty Bell, at Independence Hall. We have historic markers on the uh, the stops of the Underground Railroad in, in Philadelphia. But a historic marker for a place where a, an alien abduction occurred it's like the state is acknowledging this event happened and this is something we want to recognize as part of New Hampshire history. The one thing I, I think I would I would add to that, though, is that they were upstanding. But I think one thing that's lost in this sometimes is that they were an interracial couple in 1960. And there's got to be a lot of stress around that. There's got to be a lot in that that puts stress on on the two of their lives in that I, I, and, and where I go with that is, is less on Barney and more on her in that she kind of went from, I think being very active in the NAACP locally to being more active in the UFO community and understanding if you have an event, that's kind of going to happen, but you know, it, they have stressors in their lives that I'm sure uh, in 1960, that's not easy to deal with. And when you get down trauma and things like that, I think, you know, there's stuff there. there there's stuff that that um, she's that she's obviously would have been dealing with that I, I don't know other folks can kind of put into context. And that's one of the things that that really stands out to me as not necessarily making this true, but making it true for them, because as an interracial couple in 1961, especially when I think about Barney coming from Philadelphia and what the climate and the the culture was like here in this community in the 60s and the 70s and God, even into the 80s, um, you know, the North likes to act like we were like, like we're not a racist part of the country. And guess what? It happens everywhere. Right. So when I think about the role that he was in um, as a black man married to a white woman, Yes, he's in New Hampshire. Yes, he's on a committee to fight for civil rights. But that that's a, a they're probably dealing with a lot of horrors on their own. And it makes me wonder if they would really do something to like, would they intentionally do something to call attention to themselves as an interracial couple in 1961? I don't think they would. Well, unless I, I don't, unless there's something I, I that whether, either it happened or they believe that it happened. Yeah. I, I, I think they believe it happened, right? Any of this I'm saying, I right, right, made it up. I, I, I think there's a lot there that can add to um, add to some of the events that that have been laid out. And and I no, I don't think they made it up at all. I think she absolutely believes what happened happened. Yeah, and uh, I I just want to make a a point on that and that they didn't want to initially come forward with their story to the public because they thought it would interfere with their work with the NAACP and all the social uh, things that they did around New Hampshire. Barney did a lot of speaking engagements in the New England area. They were prominent in uh, one of Lyndon Johnson's election campaigns. So uh, I think that goes a little way into, um, you know, showing their character. And uh, Jen, I kind of want to pivot to you for a second. And like, if you, if you had to put Betty and Barney Hill on a witness stand, how would you perceive them? So I think, again, talking about this in the, like a courtroom context, it's a little difficult because when, 
like in a courtroom, the question is credibility. And like, that's what you're instructed by the judge. If you're a juror is your job is to judge the the, sorry, your job is to judge the credibility of these witnesses. That is what you're going to be told. Like, that's what, that's the focus that we like, that's what we put the focus on. But to me, and in a lot of the research that I've done in the past six months or so, just working on the Amelia Earhart case, for example, credibility of the witness does not necessarily have any relationship at all to the truth or falsity of what they say they saw. Those two things aren't necessarily related, but we as a, as, you know, we think that it does. So if somebody is telling us a story and we find them credible and we believe them, then we tend to think that what they are saying must be true. But the research out there shows that that's not the case at all. And so what you're asking me is, it's a little bit difficult to answer because if the mm-hmm. question is, would a jury find them credible? I think a jury would. I really do. But does that necessarily mean that we can rely upon what they are saying? I mean, there is so much we don't know about the human brain and about memory and the whole hypnosis aspect throws a whole new wrench into it and it confuses everything. So, I mean, yeah, if, if, the, if the question is, are they credible? Yeah, I 100% think that a jury would find them credible. But does that really answer the question of did this happen or did this not happen? Uh, I don't know. It seems to just make the whole thing a lot messier. Yeah, I would. I just wanted to make the point too, you know, and I mean, Rob, Rob knows this, um, having, having spoken to people who've had experiences like this and, and having to himself and everything else that just because you think something happened or just because you remember something happening doesn't mean that it did happen. You know, I mean, I remember those spiders really vividly, but it didn't happen. But if I was more prone to believing that fantastical things could happen. Maybe I would think that it really happened to me. And further, there is something I think almost, there is something almost, I don't want to say intoxicating, but there is something to be said for the, uh, the community and the safety that one finds in a group, like say the UFO community, where you can make claims no matter how outlandish and they will be accepted because there are other people there who are saying, well, I wouldn't want my own experiences to be questioned. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, when, when I was with MUFON, we had a guy who would come to the local meetings in my area who was infamous for saying that he had continued experiences with something supernatural but not having any evidence to back it up. Um, And he's particularly famous for inviting people onto his homestead in kind of the wilderness of Minnesota and having people like do sleepovers and stuff and camp out for the Bigfoot family. That's really an alien family to visit them, you know? And um, after speaking to this guy a couple of times, you know, I was like, well, I kept asking him if you have pictures because he claimed he had photos of these things. I was like, well, if you have photos, I'd love to see them and I'd love to analyze them and get someone, you know, put some real boots in the ground here to figure out what the heck's going on in some way. And um, he finally did show me a photo. He sent me one and I still have it. Um, And it's just a picture of his backyard. There's nothing in the photo. So, Chris, what you're saying is that it's clown pants. It's, I mean, what really though, this is someone who goes to the meetings. This is someone who told me 
continuously, I have evidence, I have evidence, I have evidence. I said, give me your best piece of evidence. And he sends me a photo of just a backyard. There's nothing in the photo of any interest. So uh, Chris and he claims that the photo has, he claims that the photo shows clearly a Bigfoot. Well, Chris, you realize you just can't see it because you're a non-believer, right? Yeah, like, exactly. You know that's what it is. <laughs> well, but, but that's, but that's the whole thing here, right? Is yeah. that, I also think that over time, you know, being in that kind of of being inside an uncritical community and just just because someone says they saw something, or they believe something or whatever, they might totally believe that it happened. It doesn't mean it did. And it's again to go to kind of Jen's point about credibility and everything else, it it's a huge problem in the UFO community. I mean, it's you know, it's what we keep saying about the cases like the Nimitz case now, right? Or these other cases, do you really want that case to be linked in any way to the non-credibility of these individuals or these other cases? You know, if, if you get uh, robbed and the only person in the store to witness the robbery is OJ Simpson, <laughs> are you going to call OJ on the stand? Are you, you know what I mean? Like, no, of course not. His credibility is shot, right? So, it's the same thing with this. It's, it's kind of, I think, um, I don't know. It's just so sticky and it's so impossible to separate what happened and what didn't happen. You know, the only way we're ever going to know is if the aliens, have even all of us. Might not know. don't put so, that out into the universe. Fingers crossed. Well, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I've been putting that out to the universe forever. Okay, but not okay? with me. Like, aliens, like my Sicilian, me. my Sicilian superstition is getting all like spidey sense. Now don't put that out to the universe. <laughs> aliens demons goblins ghouls come get me i want evidence Rob, can i ask the group a question yeah, no go, go right ahead go so right i'm ahead. curious yeah. what folks think is we're talking quite a bit about the abduction but if we were to separate this into into maybe two events right even though they're not but uh, yeah there's there's the aspect of the drive home from canada and the the drive through Vermont into New Hampshire and that period of time where as they made different stops, they saw something, right? They witnessed some mm -hmm. sort of a craft that during similar time frames, something was picked up on ground and air radar at other locations. So I'm curious if, if the rest of the crew here today, what you think about that piece of the Hill event, the the visual, what they saw, did they see something? And, and could it be that that part is perhaps more authentic than the abduction. So I just wanted to toss that out. Well, I've always in my mind kind of compared it to the Cash Landrum case. And probably that's just because I know more mm. about the Cash Landrum case than I do about other okay. cases. But if you take away the abduction aspect of it, to me, it really does have a lot of similarities. They, I mean, especially with the physical evidence tied to the car and the fact that they were concerned at some point about whether or not they were affected by radiation. I mean, there's, it's not a perfect analogy they're not exactly the same i mean they were driving down the road they thought that the light was following them there are little similarities and whenever i started to hear the beginning of the story that was the first thing i thought of is that it's really similar to cash landrum and i personally don't think cash landrum was a, a genuine ufo i think it was a genuine event that happened but i tend to think it was more of a terrestrial thing that's just my personal opinion and so that's kind of where my mind was going whenever i heard the beginning part of this story again taking out all of the abduction stuff that came out later. I think when you, uh, because uh, the, the original report that Walter Webb wrote, 
he didn't have the abduction stuff to go on. So when he went to rewrite the report, he had to divide it into two sections. We have encounter one, which is the UFO on the road. And then we have encounter two, the abduction stuff. Even Dr. Benjamin Simon agreed that something genuine happened to them. He just couldn't put his fingers on it. And with his determination, and I understand why he went the way he did, he basically said, I was at a crossroads where I had to either uh, believe that aliens are now visiting us or that there is some other explanation for this. And that's really what drove him. That first experience, though, you can't discount that. Something had to have happened there. And I think that's kind of where the strength of this case lies, to be honest. So I'll just – oh, sorry. Now, uh, go ahead, Reggie. I think they saw the thing, right? Whatever whatever it was, I think they saw the thing. Mm-hmm. They reported the thing. When the Air Force said, yeah, we saw the thing too – it was after that she started having her dreams. So I, I think that one was a springboard into the other because it, from what I've read, it wasn't until after her dreams really kicked in that, uh, that Barney started kind of running with it. I think at one time he called it nonsense until, you know, it kind of made its way down further. But I, yeah, I think they saw something. The air force said, yeah, we saw something. And then it kind of takes on its life of its own and, goes on into the other things. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I think if the Air Force had, you know, if they picked up something on radar, there's a thing, right? There's a thing they saw. And they and they tried to, to like downplay it uh, kind of from the start. They claimed it was right. a weather inversion. And then they came to the conclusion that what they Hills saw was an advertising searchlight. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's convincing. At 10.30 at night, sure. Advertising searchlight. Gotcha. Uh, Until they finally ruled that what they had seen was Jupiter, even though they could recognize Jupiter in the sky as hanging slightly below the moon. So, uh, Air Force, not totally reliable in this case. But the, 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 the radar data is reliable because we we know that they did pick up something on radar we have testimony about that uh but i i can't totally trust the air force when it comes to this case anyway so i kind of think that one one of the reasons why this case is my favorite is because i lived so near where (laughs) like like that you know new hampshire those roads that they drove on were roads that i drove all the time back and forth from my wife's or my then girlfriend, now wife's grandma's house up in the kind of mountains of New Hampshire on the Vermont border. Um, and then even that, that drive essentially from where they lived in Portsmouth up to Montreal, um, that drive too is one that I've made, uh, you know, numerous times in different spots on that route. So even today, there are swaths of that road where there are just no lights there. You know, there's nothing on the road. It's dark. And I mean, this is common for a lot of parts of the country. You know, the thing that's interesting with New Hampshire is because it is so mountainous and it's so hilly and there's so much on the sides of the roads that there are points in the road that you can see lights that are there, 
that appear to move with your car in odd ways, but it's just a, it's just the light itself being in this pitch blackness, you know? So it's hard to gauge how far away light is. It's also frankly, really easy to kind of have what is called, and this was, this was actually a thought experiment that a philosophy professor had done in a class that I took. And I had never really thought of it this way, or I never really considered this, but think about the last time you drove home from work. Can you can you recall in any great detail anything that happened on that drive? Like, do you remember it's when you're on autopilot? They made a saw? big deal about they made a big deal about those exactly. 35 miles. And I'm thinking to myself, girl, I've driven longer than that and been like, how the hell did I just do this? <laughs> Are you kidding? Yeah. At, uh, we, you know, we had to, dr- we drove from New Hampshire where the hills lived to Minneapolis, Minnesota to move here. I don't remember anything about that trip. <laughs> you know, parts of the country I'd never seen before. I don't remember any of it. I, I hardly remember what I had. And it is scary driving up yesterday. there at night. It, I go to New England quite a bit for work. And when I'm in New Hampshire, I'm in, yeah. you know, sometimes a little further south in Manchester or Laconia. You know, I've been to Concord. And it's it's actually, Chris, because you were, when you came on my show to talk about Kecksburg, Somebody I work with in New Hampshire, after they heard that episode, they said, well, do you know about the hills? <laughs> so it was like a year and a half ago was the first time I found out <laughs> about the story. But it is scary driving up there at night. And I'm up there often enough that, you know, I can't say I know exactly where I'm going without GPS, but I do okay. But when I'm taking back roads, please, I could disappear and like nobody would know. It's yeah, well, and, and I mean, and that's the thing is that there's a lot, I think, and I mean, of course, they live there, they're in, you know, they live there for a long time, they were, you know, they were used to these roads, everything else, all that is true, fine. But there is, I think, a lot of wiggle room for if if something traumatic happened to me on the road, and then I had to try to recall what happened in any great detail, I'm not sure I could, you know, and even, um, even times where something has happened that have been like oh i should remember this right we had a bad car accident when i was a kid um you know i was like 13 and our car got hit and we spun out and my mom had neck problems for a long time and you know something that should be kind of crystallized in my mind as as having happened all i remember is the car spinning i don't remember anything else about it you know and this was like this was like the one major car crash i've ever been in um stuff like that is i think you know we we don't realize how much our memory gets muddy and how flexible it is and how easy it is to introduce new things to it. Um, that, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just, I think it's really, this case is, this case is interesting to me more because of what it says about the human mind than what it says about aliens. Yeah. Um, so have any of you ever seen yeah. uh, Elizabeth Loftus does these Ted talks on memory and, they're really, really interesting for anyone that hasn't seen them. And she, of course, talks about it in terms of like court cases and stuff and, and eyewitness testimony. But I mean, they've done these experiments where they can they can show that somebody remembers an event, something as simple as like a car accident, and they're recalling details, vivid details, sometimes in response to questions, sometimes not. And they know with 100% certainty that that is not what happened. But the person remembers it so vividly that you cannot convince them that that is not what they saw. 
it's really interesting. And it just, mm-hmm. it does. It starts, once you start to watch enough of these things, you start to call into question everything you've ever remembered about your life. <laughs> it, well, they have those, they have those, uh, they have those YouTube videos where, and this is one that I always like to talk about on the, on my show is they have a YouTube video. There's one I'll never forget. It's, um, or maybe I did forget now I'm making it up in my head, but you know, it's, um, it's like a group of people passing a red ball back and forth to each other. And so the thing says, well, try, you know, your job is to remember how many times the ball gets passed from person to person. And at the end of it, you're like, Oh, I got passed like 52 times, whatever. Right. And then they're like, okay, well, did you get 52? Okay. Well, great job. Did you notice the dinosaur in the background? (laughs) And you're like, what? And then they play the video back and there's a guy in one of those blow up T-Rex suits that like walks in the frame, waves at you, does a little dance and then walks away. And it's like, and the the thing is they're like 95% of people, wherever it is, won't, won't notice the dinosaur because your brain is really good at filtering out information. That's not pertinent to what you're doing. So Chris, to kind of touch on the, the point that you, you made, uh, about you know driving through the White Mountains is do you think then that the moments when they stopped and they looked at this thing through a pair of binoculars is that significant or do you think that's just not significant at all? I honestly, man, I have no idea. That's yeah. the thing with this case too is that it's so hard to tell. I think it is significant that two people who lived in this part of the country for so long, and I mean again. Portsmouth is way different than the parts of New Hampshire where they had their event. You know, we're t- it's like it's like the difference between New York City and like Rob, kind of where you live, mm-hmm. right? In terms of okay, it's the same state, but it is different. It's a different geography. It's different infrastructure. You know, uh, I I didn't know what a night I didn't know what nighttime looked like until I moved out of New York City and got to New Hampshire. You know, it, it gets dark. <laughs> so you know like like where i'm from and, D- and dina i'm sure you have the same thing where we're you from never have a dark like, sky like there's that, so much nighttime. ambient light for 30 30 no, miles 40 can, miles easy you can read yeah mm-hmm. you can read yeah, at you night anywhere you in the street light nothing because yep. it's so bright no so it's it is definitely different portsmouth is different than the parts of new hampshire where they had their event that being said though them stopping and looking, them recalling all these different events that were, were all of that. I think, I mean, something had to have happened to them. Something had to happen to them. And some of the explanations I've seen, and, and you know, we did our investigation on this case and it's one that I've had a lifelong interest, interest in, you know, some of the explanations I think go from the ridiculous, like it being Jupiter that they saw all the way to the almost crazier than them. It actually being aliens. You know, there's one there's one that is they got they were attacked at night by a group of people and they turned it into an alien abduction event so that they didn't uh, have the trauma of like a racist attack on them in the mountains of New Hampshire. You know, like, I don't know about that. Right. Right. That seems a little bit because, yeah, because you're uh, like what? There's a group of racist people just hanging out in the middle of the White Mountains, just waiting for passing, you know, interracial couple to right the the one black guy in all of New Hampshire to drive by. Right. They're like, get him. It's crazy. Right. It's absolutely insane. Not to say that attacks like that don't happen, of course. Right. But to think that, you know, the argument, the argument for that would be that uh, they because they claim that 
as they're driving along the road, they see this thing in the sky, you know, whatever. And then they come to a, a part in the road that they're not recognizing. And there is a roadblock there. Mm. And there are these kind of weird looking humanoids that kind of look normal, but don't really look normal. They pass by and then they, um, and then they keep going and then they have the actual event. Right. And that's when the aliens come and they take Barney out of the car and Betty, whenever the argument that people would make some people, not many would make is that they, this, this was humans that stopped them and then accosted them in some way. Mm-hmm. But that again, doesn't, make very much sense you know i just it doesn't pass the smell test to me mm-hmm. um but i don't know i mean man it's this case is so from a pragmatic standpoint of someone who and i think i think jen maybe you can speak to this more too i would argue that from a pragmatic standpoint a lot of this this case is one that is really good as story but I am very doubtful of its ability to be used to prove things either way. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think a big, big problem with this whole story is the lack of timely investigation. Mm-hmm. A lot of the information we have, like we were talking about at the beginning of of this discussion, a lot of this stuff came out later. And when something big like this happens... And not even just like in the UFO context, when something happens and you want to get to the truth about why this happened, what exactly happened, you need to investigate quickly. You need to preserve evidence before it is tainted. You need to talk to people before their memory has been affected, before too much time has passed. You need to really get in there and do a thorough, unbiased investigation. And with UFO events, that is the biggest problem that I've seen, is that Serious investigations, they might be done, but they might be done later, much after the fact, or they're done with people or they're done by people who have a clear confirmation bias, either one way or the other. It's just really hard to get an investigation into something like this that I think would hold up in court. So, Chris, I want to ask you one more question. Did you ever drive through the White Mountains to try to get abducted? I got to I got to know. I got to know now. You know what's funny is, uh, so I have taken the trip to that part of New Hampshire where the actual abduction took place. And the thing is that's funny too is they don't even know exactly where it happened because their accounts of it are so weird. So the, the marker of where it is probably isn't actually where it happened. Um, they claim that it happened near a uh, an amusement park that doesn't exist anymore but used to. And right. so they're actually, you know, you can still go to like the parking lot where they probably pulled over um, or, you know, near that area where they pulled over for the last time and then had the event. And then there's a back road there that they probably went down and, you know, the event itself actually took place. Um, but, man, there have been times where I've been in the in the mountains, of New Hampshire, driving home at night. You know, when I was in grad school my last year, I lived in Claremont, New Hampshire the site of another kind of big UFO, not really big, but another UFO case. And I, I drove, I used to drive home every night from the lab pretty late, you know, like 11 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night. And uh, when you passed over from 93 to 89, you know, in Concord, you're, you're, you switch from being on like a major highway with lights and cities and stuff to being on a road that essentially is winding through, mountains and forest and then you know you eventually will come into like little towns right 
Mm-hmm. But primarily, like 89 is a dark road. It's it's small, whatever. And then to get to Claremont, you'd get off it, you get off on 89, um, and you'd be driving through these small parts of New Hampshire, you know, and there were times on that road where, like I said, you you know, you would see the moon and you'd be like, how is the moon moving around like that? Like the moon looks like it's moving from one side of my car to like the other side, but there's nothing, you know, why is it, I'm not moving that much, or it doesn't seem like you're moving that much or, you know, whatever visual imperceptions like that are, are super easy to make up there if you're really looking. Um, and besides that too, there were definitely times where, you know, you'd be driving and you would just get like, man, it's spooky here. <laughs> <laughs> because it is, it kind of is, you know, especially if you're listening to like, I was like an idiot. Um, listening to Barney's I, I, when I was doing, or when I was investigating cases for the podcast myself before it started, um, I listened to Barney's, I used to listen to stuff like YouTube videos or whatever, as I was driving over the Bluetooth, you know, if it didn't need like visuals, right? So Barney's abduction, uh, you know, his, the hour and a half tapes that are made available to the public. I listened to those driving through New Hampshire on the way home from the lab. Are you a madman? Are you a madman? Stupid idea, Rob. It was so <laughs> scary. I seriously, like, I stopped at a McDonald's. I didn't get anything, but I just sat in the McDonald's because of the brightness. Yeah. I just kind of sat there for like a half hour and I was like, I'm an idiot. Like, I, I scared myself stupid on the way home. Um, yeah, bad stuff, man. A little rough. Anyways. So um I I, I wanna I wanna pivot here again and I uh Reggie, I'm gonna throw it to you on this one, buddy. How do you think the Betty and Barney Hill case affected the way that we all describe and see aliens and and eyewitnesses describe aliens? How do you think this case affected? Yeah, so (laughs) I think that's that's funny, right? And and I'm sure most people who who know this uh, who know this case start realizing and seeing this kicked off a lot of the evolution of the way aliens looked right like the shorter aliens the aliens that have wraparound eyes the aliens that have dark eyes um it it kind of kicked that off and you know it's we're talking about them running with something and and chris i think you were talking about the ufo community you know kind of being tight-knit i i think from there it just ran you know folks latched on to it and that became the way it looked these are what aliens look like. And then it took, you know, kind of, kind of grew from there. So um, yeah, I I think it changed. I I think it changed kind of the, okay, I'm being abducted. I'm having an experience and they kind of look like somebody else's experience that they had. So yeah, I I mean, I I think it's interesting like that. And, you know, one of the things, and I was going to bring this up earlier when we were talking about hypnotism, have you guys ever seen the, the parallels between the, Outer Limits episodes that came right before Barney Hill's hypnosis. Yes. Have you guys ever seen that outline? That's yeah. the, the children of Spider County yeah. and the way Barney Hill describes his alien are so similar that it's funny that, you know, if you think about it that way, then yeah, Rob, it's progressed from fiction into hypnosis into sort of fact in the UFO community so i i don't know i mean that's that's that progression is going through is interesting from a creative standpoint didn't they swear up and down they had never seen outer limits 
Yeah, but how do sci-fi fans like, not see Outer yeah, Limits? Yeah, they did. I mean, you know, Outer Limits, the Twilight Zone, those those were on all the – well, not all the time then, but – how are you not watching them? Especially if you'd had a UFO experience three years ago. How are you? How are you not watching Outer Limits and the Twilight Zone? Yeah. Also, I mean, Betty would say that they had no experience with UFOs, but her sister had seen one. Her family was known. Her her family had said that they had uh, UFO encounters, not an abduction per se, but you know, when she called her sister, um, her sister had a similar experience previously. So it's hard to, I think, separate that claim from, again, um, the mythos of the yeah, story. Yeah, my, my family, being from the South, nobody's had any ghost experiences. But then, I, man, if you start talking about ghost experiences, everybody has one, talking about Booger Woods or something like that. So, you know, it's one of, the, it's one of those things where when somebody comes up with, you know, they've seen something unusual, it's, well, yeah, but a lot of people have in your family, including you. So... Um, I don't know. It, it, it's I, I, I know those those that backgrounds there with her, so it would be hard to believe she was not a sci-fi fan. I think what's interesting in terms of really how the the image of the alien has evolved over the years, like it may have kind of started with Betty and Barney Hill, but it took over 28 years after their encounter before it really started to take hold. And I think like the aliens that we talk about today, the, the, the grays, like what gets inherited from their accounts is more the location of where they're from. Every gray is from Zeta Reticuli now, you know, and but I would say that the cover of communion had more of an impact on the way that aliens are viewed than maybe the Betty and Barney Hill incident. And I do think that there is putty there that, you know, it it was kind of always there in like the public consciousness in terms of like how popular this case was the, I'm sure many people who, you know, read the interrupted journey saw the images that were in there, but I, I don't know if the, it necessarily had as big an impact as, uh, as say, like communion. Yeah, but, you know, it, well, they're certainly not it, coming. They're, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, I mean, they're certainly not coming down. You know, it's not like a, you know, Pamela Anderson comes down and is like, you know, oof, I'm from Venus. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh my God, an alien. Um, you know, those kinds of aliens don't seem to visit us anymore for some reason. Um, we only get the little gray guys. The uh, I think there's something to be said for the idea that their story, their motif of this case, of it being little beings, um, like you said, they're not – it's not definitively that this is what everyone else sees and, and whatever. Communion, I think, definitely shaped things more towards that way. But – there is still certainly something about this idea. I mean, you know, they were before Benny Barney Hill, they were little green men, right? Mm. Little men, little green men. Right. So the, the kind of natural progression of, you know, you change a couple of features, you, it just makes sense to me. I mean, and that's the thing though, too, that things that make sense don't, aren't, aren't always true. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> Things that seem to make sense naturally to us, it's the, you know, the naturalist fallacy, right? Just because it seems like it should make sense or just because it seems like it's natural doesn't mean that it's good or, or you know, yeah. in this case, true necessarily. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. It's hard though. Communion, I think, I agree with you, Rob, ultimately. Communion had a bigger case, but then the question must be asked, well, where did Communion, where did Strieber get his, you know, inspiration or his view or whatever, assuming it was not from the aliens, you know, taking him? Right, and I think there's something to be said about, like, uh, if you guys, like, fire up Google and you look at, uh, look, Google the term, like, Joe Nichols alien timeline or something like that, he kind of breaks things down to where you can see that like the aliens that people are encountering start to get homogenous around 1987. So mm-hmm. it's like people having non-abduction experiences tend to encounter like the weirder looking aliens than those who are abducted ex- with some few, a few exceptions like the, Pascagoula case, I still don't know what the hell those things are. They're very weird looking uh, uh, carrot-like appendages on their heads, elephant-like skin, uh, just really weird looking creatures. So, um, yeah, in terms of the Hill case, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of like stuck in the middle because like, while the Hills case was popular, you know, largely because of, you know, the Boston Traveler articles and the uh, interrupted journey, it's weird that it took f- over 27 years for abductions to become a kind of a regular thing because it, it just seemed like before that it was like something rare and there was really only three, t- two other cases aside from the Hill case that were even popular before 1987. So I don't know. I kind of, I kind of struggle with the, what the Hill case brought to the table alien wise. I think it was the Hill case on unsolved mysteries. What what do you think about that? (laughs) What do you think about that? Isn't that around the same time that, that that case was covered on unsolved mysteries, Rob? I know unsolved mysteries is one of your, one of your favorite topics that, uh, that, that uh, you, uh, you're a fan of that show. No, they never covered the Hill case, which was kind of interesting. I, I would have thought they did. They, uh, did they not? No, they didn't. They did not cover the Hill case. Uh, the only like abduction case that comes to my mind that they ever covered, and it was one that just scared the hell out of me when I was, uh, I think I was like 10 when I saw it, and it was the uh, the Allagash abductions. Man, that that terrified the hell out of me. <laughs> the... Um... What's it? The thing the thing about this that I kind of find so fascinating is or this is one reason I think why now if you if you were to do a serious investigation of UFOs in some way or an abduction what evidence would you even pick that has not been potentially skewed? Mm-hmm. Like asking what they look like doesn't really work anymore because we all know no. what they should look like. <laughs> you know, so either way like, oh, they're trying not to make them look like little greys or they're trying to make them look like little greys. But some of the things, you know, for me, the things that have always stuck out have been the commonalities that have existed in these stories that don't seem to be, uh, what's the word, don't seem to be highly reported, you know? So one thing is that 
their ships supposedly their ships are dirt or kind of dirty like they're dusty you know like like there's yeah. debris all over the place they don't really seem to care about keeping stuff clean um in the same way that like you'd expect from a sci-fi thing right another one is this the smell supposedly um or you know another one is like the skin texture itself all of those are things that haven't really been widely reported that maybe could be used as like that smoking gun that we said very early on, you know, not that there's really anything like that. I mean, the Betty and Barney Hill case had, um, what's interesting too, is that it's so different than the kind of cases that were being reported around them at the time. You know, if we think Mothman was only a couple years after their event and with Mothman, we're talking almost more like eldritch horrors, of, you know, these weird things and humanoid-like things and, uh, you know, but then you have uh, what, what Darren Berger talking about naked humans taking him to Lanulos. But, you know, it's those commonalities and they're interesting and Keel talks about some of them in his books and he says, you know, well, one of them is like the names, the same names keep coming up. That's kind of weird. So, I don't know. I mean, I wish that the, I don't know. The Hill case is a weird one because it's one that we today would – it's one that we today think has more credibility. And I always wonder if going back to like the 60s and 70s, would it look like instead an outlier that that doesn't fit yeah. the narrative? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're essentially saying that it's been bolstered over time. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, I would love to think about or try to, I don't know, try to get some information or firsthand accounts or whatever about how it was viewed back then. Even like, you know, I don't know, journal articles or whatever. I know Tenny has like a billion copies of like UFO magazine or whatever. Like going right. through those <laughs> and seeing and trying to figure out like, well, what, you know, how is this viewed back then? That I think is really instructive and really interesting. That's true of anything, though, really. Like, we as humans, we want a very clean story. We want to, mm -hmm. we remember things best when it is told chronologically and it's linear and it all fits together and it all makes sense. That's true of anything, especially the further away you get from it in time. Anytime you, like, really get into the weeds and you investigate what was it like to actually be in this situation, it's always, always, always much more messy, much more complicated, much less black and white than you then you perceive it from a distance. This is not just a UFO thing. So I guess, uh, I guess for the final question here, um, let's, let's start with Dina on this one. At the end of the day, knowing what you know about the Hill case and all the evidence that present that is presented, where do you find yourself uh, in terms of believability of this case? How do you, how do you feel about this case? I believe there was a sighting of something that may not have been a craft from our military or from our planet. I don't believe there was an abduction, but I, I think they are, I think they're convinced that something happened to them. Although I may not believe that aspect of the story. Let's, uh, let's pivot to Jen here. Jen, where do you find yourself at the end of the day with this uh, case? I think, tend to believe the things that Betty and Barney Hill say in that I find them credible. I have a really hard time believing that they would 
make any of this up. I don't fall into the camp that says, no, this entire thing was a hoax. I believe that something significant happened. I tend to think that it all necessarily didn't happen on the same night. I think there very well have been, I think there very well may have been a lot more going on, kind of like what Chris says, that maybe in their minds, they all kind of connected it to this one thing that they remembered. I think that's a huge possibility. But yeah, I'm just, I'm not there on the alien abduction. I just, I don't, I don't know if I can get there. Mm. That's understandable. I, 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 I can agree with that. Definitely. Reggie, how about you, man? Where, where are you at with this case at the end of the day? Yeah, I, I think they had a sighting and uh, then the rest of it is an incredible study of hypnosis and dreams. I think it's fantastic, like to look at um, how the chronology of it and how that grew and how the story grew and even, you know, to Betty Hill's death, how it grew. So uh, I think they had a sighting, you know, and, and I think from there it just it just grew. And I think it's really fascinating. I think it's um obviously has latched on to a lot of folks with interest, you know, how interesting the case has been, but uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't think there was an abduction, but I think it's really amazing how their story of it has grown. I don't, I don't think it was a hoax at all. I don't think they made any of it up. I think it, it just evolved into what it is. And I think, I guess it's still evolving since we're, since we're doing this podcast and discussing it. So. And how about you, Chris? Where are you at, man? So I don't, with all of these cases, I think that it is almost unhelpful or almost like for me personally, I guess, not really unhelpful, but for me personally, it is unimportant the truth or the falsity of the case itself. Because, and it's unimportant what I think about the truth or falsity of the case. Like personally, since you're asking me, I think that they, I think that they probably saw something in this guy that scared them. I don't know if all the other stuff happened, but I also think more pragmatically, which is kind of the way I try to look at these things in the first place, more pragmatically, I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure that the case itself does anything to help bolster evidence one way or the other. Like if you were trying to prove to the American public, or you were trying to prove to a skeptic that UFOs were real or that this events like this do happen. The Benny and Barney Hill case is not one that I would use as my linchpin because there are so many problems with it that we've all talked about and we're like not a super hard audience, you know? So um, I just think that it's a case that's of interest and it is interesting. Um, But I'm not sure that it is. I'm not sure that it is powerful or that it is so airtight that it could be used as a, as a linchpin case. I can, yeah, I can totally understand that. And uh, I think you all have some great insights on the Betty and Barty Hill case. And I can't thank you all enough for joining me today. So uh, starting with Chris and going down the line, uh, where can people find out more about you and what you do on the internet and all that stuff? Plug your work. So... Chris Cogswell, host of the Mad Scientist podcast, along with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. You can find us on um, Spotify, Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, all your podcast players, all that stuff. Just search for the Mad Scientist podcast or at Twitter at Mad Scientist Pod um, on Instagram as the Mad Scientist, Mad Scientist.
podcast um and just everywhere the mad scientist podcast find us dina marie host of the twisted philly podcast you can find twisted philly wherever you listen to your favorite shows it's a mix of history paranormal true crime travel and tourism social issues uh i'm on twitter at twisted underscore philly on instagram at twisted philly and then I also have a second show I do with my fiance, Jeremy, who hosts the podcast we listen to podcast and Facebook group. That's called Educating Jeremy, where we watch movies he's never seen that I love and we talk about it and I make fun of him. I would also very quickly just like to call out one more parallel here, and that's that James Earl Jones played Barney Hill in the TV movie about their experience about a man who told the story of aliens who wore shiny black uniforms with little black caps. And then he went on to play Darth Vader, whose minions wore shiny black uniforms with little black caps. Just want to say that. The conspiracy has been blown open. Fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Jen, plug your stuff. All right, my stuff. So by day, I'm a criminal defense attorney. You can find information about my firm and about what I do 40 hours a week or more at smithandvincent.com. You can find me on the interwebs at Vanished Pod. That is, that's, I co-host Vanished. So that show is is really interesting. We take historical disappearances. Season one was Amelia Earhart. Season two is going to be John Wilkes Booth. And we basically gather up all of the theories out there on what happened in a particular historical mystery and we do a little mock trial and try to put everything on trial and see how evidence holds up and can we prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt it's a whole lot of fun chris williamson and i do that together i also have my own podcast called in defense of liberty you can find that at defense pod on pretty much any social media platform and i talk about law it's sort of true crime-ish but it's mostly law so if you're into that kind of thing, go find me there. Reggie, go ahead, buddy. Hey, so uh, you can find me on Twitter, underscore R Scott Whitley, underscore. Um, you can find some of my writing out there. Um, if you go searching for it, I don't have it really held in one place. If you want to join me on Twitter, I think I'm kind of funny. There's not many topics that I don't talk about. I'm not on a podcast, but hey, if you want to have me, don't hesitate to invite me. absolutely (laughs) uh and uh if you want to connect with us the our strange skies podcast head on over to ourstrangeskies.com where you can find more information about our episodes links to our social media pages and a cool blog post that i wrote about aliens that do weird stuff with your clothing and all other sorts of weird things but uh Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, and our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. Or in your car, racing home to record a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) In Gray We Trust.
Duvid Media.